Welcome. I'm Alex Jones. Tom, won't you have a seat? Uh, a director of the Shorenstein Center, and it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome an old friend, Howard Feynman, who has been a distinguished correspondent and uh, political analyst for many years. Lots of years. And I'm now a caricature myself. <laughs> uh, there's no reason to let these seats be empty. I mean, with people standing, so please, they're, they're, they can be filled. Uh, Howard has, for many years, well, he's worked in many, many places. He's still working in many places. He's a regular uh, face on MSNBC and other shows frequently on uh, Hardball. Uh, but his real change of life came uh, just last year when he left uh, Newsweek and a position of great sort of uh, influence as a columnist uh, at Newsweek to go to the Huffington Post, and, and which migrated into AOL, uh, which basically expects him to do everything he was doing before and a lot of other new things besides. He uh, describes himself as an early adapter, uh, who has seen a lot of adopter. things <laughs> Adopter. Uh, who has seen a lot of things change in uh, the world of, of journalism. I've asked him to speak today on two things. One is about the work he's doing now at AOL Huffington Post and how that is, um, is, is in his way of thinking something really genuinely new. And second, to get his perspective on what is happening, of course, in the political landscape with uh, the Huffington Post now has declared that uh, Governor Christie is not going to run, is that correct? Christie's not running. We, we weren't the first to declare it, but, uh, uh, but pretty, he, he's having a, uh, Chris Christie's having a press conference at one o'clock, and the word is out that he's, he's definitely not running. I think that was the, the conventional wisdom was that he probably wouldn't, but everybody put the probably in there because there's a certain element of madness in running for president to begin with. So why should he be exempt? <laughs> In any event, Howard, welcome. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. Uh, first, it's an honor to be here, as always, um, and especially to be able to, to do something for my friend Alex, who uh, I've known for many years and have tremendous, tremendous respect for. And um, without any further ado, let me tell you uh, what I'm up to. Um, I've been at Newsweek for many years. Before that, I was at the Louisville Courier-Journal in Kentucky, which is one of the great regional newspapers in the old days. Um, I'd even worked a couple months on the wire service at the UPI when I was in Columbia Journalism School. I'd um, worked on a community newspaper in my hometown of Pittsburgh. Uh, started doing television in 1983 with Washington Week in Review on PBS. First had a contract on uh, CNN in the early 90s or mid-90s, and then went under contract with NBC starting in 1998, and have been with uh, NBC and MSNBC ever since. At Newsweek, I was for many years chief political correspondent, which was a, an amusing title since there weren't any other political correspondents. <laughs> <laughs> I was the chief, and um, 
and, uh, and then that capacity covered lots and lots of uh, campaigns. Uh, the first campaign I covered full time was uh, was uh, the one that and, and Max. I hope you don't mind my saying that Maxine Isaacs and I uh, were. Uh, I was covering and she was uh, spinning uh, Walter Mondale's campaign in 1984. And I did that for many years at Newsweek. Um, and then in the last few years at Newsweek, while I was doing more and more television and writing for the web on MSNBC.com, which I started doing <coughs> in 98, I kind of dialed back to be a columnist, but a reporter essentially. I've really never been anything other than a reporter. I'm really not good at making, uh, at pounding the table and making uh, value judgments about policies and people. Um, I've trained always as a reporter, and that's what I what I am. Anyway, Newsweek was uh, in the shape that you know about in recent years, and uh, I probably stayed there way too long. Uh, and I stayed there because I was doing essentially doing line extensions of myself and my little mini brand, and then. Uh, Almost exactly a year ago, maybe 13 months ago, Ariana Huffington and I had a conversation. I've known Ariana for 17 years. I knew her when she first came to Washington in, the, in January or February of 1995 as when she was the spouse of a conservative Republican congressman named Michael Huffington. And Ariana being Ariana, she immediately set about uh, using uh, her big home for, for soirees and for uh, discussions of high-minded topics of the day. And uh, I used to go to them, and uh, so we became friends. And I stayed in touch with her over the years. When I wrote a book, uh, she was very helpful in helping me talk it through and, and think about it. And, um, and so, when the whole Newsweek thing was going down, uh, she said, would you like to come work at the Huffington Post and just be a reporter and writer at the Huffington Post? Do, do what you do for Newsweek, just do it for us. And maybe you can mentor some of the kids in the Bureau, and at the time there weren't very many, there were maybe nine or ten other people in the Washington Bureau. The Huffington Post was really just beginning to gear up its own original reporting staff, uh, as opposed to just the aggregators working the sections. Um, so that worked fine for a few months, and then in February of this year, uh, I got a call from Ariana, and she said, Howard, great news. <laughs> we are merging with AOL. Well, this was a bolt completely out of the blue. Uh, AOL, as you know, is a, a sort of founding, uh, founding company of the digital age, really. Uh, you've got mail became a phrase that everybody knew. There was even a movie made about it. Uh, but AOL, which uh, at one point in the 90s had a market capitalization of 200 billion, uh, was by last year down to about 2 billion, literally a hundredth of its original size after having devoured and then uh, been devoured by Time Warner. Uh, so Ariana and I agreed that. Um, in this new world, this new AOL Huffington Post world, uh, where all kinds of synergies were possible and all kinds of great things um, can be done, uh, given my varied background in media, uh, that I would take on a different role. And I've taken on a much uh, more 
uh, strategic and managerial role with what is now called the AOL Huffington Post Media Group. AOL still has things that have nothing to do with journalism. There's still AOL Mail. Um, there are all kinds of business-to-business -business functions that AOL does. It, it operates a very big advertising market, for example, uh, digital advertising market. But increasingly what AOL Huffington Post wants to be is uh, the best combination of news and community uh, on the web. Um, best single source for, for news and information and uh, entertainment, but not showbiz, uh, directly, uh, in all media, that is meaning print, printed, although on, on your computer screen or your, or your mm -hmm. smartphone, uh, video, uh, and so on, uh, together with social networking, because I think the thing that made the Huffington Post unique and what made it grow was that it's a combination of a news site and a social networking site. It's what I call a news community. When I would write a cover story for Newsweek, uh, even though many millions of people read it, uh, one hoped, uh, you wouldn't get a whole lot of comments, uh, or at least you wouldn't hear them. Maybe everybody was muttering as they read it or, you know, as they threw it in the wastebasket or whatever, but you rarely got a letter or a phone call. Uh, with the Huffington Post, you write a piece on the Huffington Post, if it touches a nerve at all, uh, you're likely, likely to engender 10 to 15,000 comments. Uh, and as you know, if you've looked, if you've looked at the site, um, there's a, a sort of carefully uh, tended structure of comments down below the piece. Uh, it's all moderated uh, by human beings, and, but originally vetted increasingly by, by machine. Uh, we have, we have a, uh, we bought a company a couple years ago that uh, uses various algorithms to try to help weed out obnoxious, accusatory, <coughs> bad language. Uh, when I heard that, I couldn't believe it, but it's true. <laughs> uh, and the way, it the way it does it, by the way, is interesting. It, it does it not by the content of the speech, but by the style of the speech. In other words, they train the, they train the computers to listen for the tone, the, the tone disruptive, nasty tone, and not everything automatically is bounced by that, but that's one thing that happens. But anyway, rich commentary, obviously the blogging, blogging uh, uh, feature on the left-hand side of the front page and all the verticals is a very rich thing in that thousands of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people write for it. There's been controversy, as you know, about who gets paid for what, but the basic fact is uh, if you want to say your piece, there's no better place to say it than the Huffington Post. And it's the combination of the commentary and the free access to, to op-ed page site, sites, essentially, that make the Huffington Post what it, what it is. Now we're trying to add more original reporting. Uh, one of the first things I got involved in uh, last February, <coughs> last March, when the merger became official, we got a whole bunch of money from AOL. 
was to uh, beef up the Washington Bureau. When I first went to the Washington Bureau, I think I was the ninth or tenth person there, uh, we now have over 30. And we went on a hiring binge. We hired uh, every talented reporter we could get our hands on. Uh, we got a lot of people, we got people from the New York Times, both in New York as editors and in Washington and elsewhere as reporters. We got them, we got young people off the Hill or Politico or uh, trade publications in town. We, we, we began to do what our old bureau chiefs at Newsweek did 30 years ago when I first started at Newsweek. Back in those days, you found the next generation of good reporters on regional news, on the, in the Washington Bureau of Regional Newspapers. Most of those regional, like I was at the Courier-Journal in Louisville when I got hired by Newsweek. That pipeline is kind of atrophied because most papers don't have Washington bureaus anymore. Uh, and now you find them at trade publications or smaller publications in Washington or New York or elsewhere around the country. We had a huge hiring binge. And we now have one of the bigger news staffs. Uh, we now have one of the bigger traditional bureaus in town. Uh, a year ago we didn't. Now we do. Uh, the New York Times, I think, has maybe 40, 45, report, 40 reporters in, in its Washington Bureau. We have close to 30. Uh, we started the D.C. local page, so we've got three people working for the D.C. local. So one thing we did was beef up the traditional reporting chops that we hope we can use for long investigative pieces, for feature stories, for breaking news of our own, et cetera, in full competition with the New York Times and Politico and the Washington Post and everybody else. That's the most obvious part. The second thing is that AOL had started, before it ever bought us, uh, something called Patch.com. It's, it's uh, micro-local journalism intended to take the place of uh, weekly newspapers in small <coughs> towns and suburbs of America. Uh, bless you, bless you. The original vision of it was uh, three or 4,000 of these sites around the country frankly picked, for the most part, uh, for their affluence and civic engagement. They had a, uh, a system that they put together that only, it must have been McKinsey who did it, because nobody <laughs> else could have come up with this, where, where they looked at uh, how many places of worship there were in the town, uh, what the voter registration percentages were, what the voter turnout percentages were, how affluent the people were, you know, what the home values were, and so on. So they looked for well-to-do places with a high quotient of civic engagement, and they thought these would be great places to put patch.com sites. Uh, there are now 850 of them, um, including two in Newark, uh, which we opened recently uh, at the suggestion of Cory Booker, or the encouragement of Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark. Um, each one has a full-time, paid, professional journalist, reporter, slash editor. Um, and the pay is pretty good. And it's great training, actually, because you have to be your own reporter and editor. You have to know how to post to the site. You have to know how to put video on the site. You have to know how to do some <coughs> aggregation. You don't have to sell ads. You know, you don't have to deliver the paper. But you have to know all aspects of how to publish a website. So I would submit that it's fantastic training for anybody. And uh, one of the things we're trying to do now, though, is that even while all the people who are editors of patch.com sites 
there are a lot of them in Massachusetts, by the way. Uh, we call them local editors. Um, we want them to raise their eyes up occasionally from the local school board meeting or whatever, the police department or whatever, and think about whether <laughs> something they're covering might have national implications, which then we could not only share with other patches, but now can put on the Huffington Post national site. So we're looking for synergies between patch.com and the Huffington Post. And one of my ideas, for better or worse, was that we should launch patch sites in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Uh, as an old political reporter, it seemed to me to be a natural. Uh, not all the sites that we're opening, we've opened in those three states fit the McKinsey algorithm, <laughs> but too bad. Uh, and and uh, that's working out very well. We're doing, uh, we're doing polls in those three states. We're, we're, we're regularly influencing influential people in the three states and doing our own little survey of them. Uh, we're trying to come up with stories across uh, that'll, that'll work in the campaign setting. So that's another piece of it. Another piece of it is our citizen journalism project. The Huffington Post pioneered what is called citizen journalism. Um, I call it, you know, well-meaning rank amateurs, which is fine. <laughs> Uh, and, and the idea when 2008, when they did something called Off the Bus, was to just get average people out there to go either do crowdsourced tasks, you know, low barrier to entry crowdsourced reporting tasks. You know, a crowdsourced reporting is just means, okay, Mitt Romney's uh, buying ads in uh, 150 radio stations. We need volunteers to go down and check the logs, you know, TV stations. We need volunteers to go down and check the logs in the TV station. If you're interested in doing that and reporting it back to us, please do. Uh, from crowdsourced tasks, reporting tasks, to indivi highly individualized news stories. Now, one of these became famous in 2008. It's the famous or infamous Mayhill Fowler, who uh, managed to get into a... Uh, uh, a fundraiser that candidate Obama, Barack Obama, was having. And, you know, she was a friend of a friend. You know, exactly who she was was a little unclear to some people. Uh, but she got in there with a tape recorder and, uh, and tape recorded Barack Obama uh, in a, at a San Francisco fundraiser uh, in which he sort of waxed a little too sociological about the feelings of people back in Pennsylvania who, who tended to cling to their guns and their religion. And it made the candidate sound a little too much like a, uh, like he was doing an anthropological field, you know, visit to Pennsylvania and it seemed condescending and it was, it was news, it was big news. Controversial because was she a reporter? Wasn't she a reporter? What was she doing there? It was a fundraiser, et cetera, et cetera. But we plowed, they, meaning Huffington Post, plowed right through that and made a lot of news. It was arguably one of the key moments of the campaign. Mm -hmm. And we hope to do more of that with Off the mm -hmm. Bus. And we've developed tools to solicit people's participation. And then we have a web page going up late this week where we're going to put out tasks for people. Now we have to be very careful legally because we're not hot, we're not holding out the promise that people are going to be freelancers or they're going to be paid. We're not this is not an intake valve to become a professional at the Huffington Post. It's an act of civic engagement if you want to participate. We lose money, we lose a lot of money on doing it, but we want to do it because it's part of our DNA. Uh, then there's AOL itself. 
Uh, AOL.com is a portal site. It's, it's a way into AOL Mail or other services and products of AOL. But we've started to put a lot more Huffington Post news content on AOL.com. And uh, traffic is picking up. Not only is the Huffington Post traffic surging, partly because we're redirecting traffic from elsewhere at AOL, but also just because it's, it's growing. And then there's a lot of buzz about it. But it, I think we may save AOL.com. Uh, and by the way, AOL.com is still bigger than the Huffington Post. Huffington Post has about 40 million <coughs> visitors a month, which is a standard measure, uh, 38 to 40. Uh, AOL.com has more, like 45 million. Put those two together, you're talking 80, 90 million unique visitors a month, which, which makes us one of the biggest news sites on the web, makes us the biggest independent <coughs> news site on the web, by which I mean, I think the Huffington Post is the biggest independent news website. It's bigger than the New York Times now on, in terms of web traffic. By independent, I mean it's not Yahoo News, it's not Google News, it's not MSN, it's not CNN. Uh, but after those four, we're the biggest. Now, you may have noticed yesterday that ABC News uh, did a deal with Yahoo, and that was a very shrewd move by Ben Sherwood, who runs ABC, who I think is a brilliant guy, to basically try to use Yahoo's platform piggyback a ABC News onto Yahoo's web platform, which I think is brilliant, absolutely brilliant move. So then, then now they're, they're going to be bigger than we are. And, you know, size doesn't do everything on the internet, as you know. Niche, niche is what sells. Just being big doesn't necessarily sell. So that's sort of the overall feel of it. Uh, we need to break more news. We need to write more investigative pieces. We hired a terrific investigative reporter. Uh, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's the next Mike Isakoff who I worked with for 25 years, but he's pretty damn good. He's very, very good. And we've got a lot of other really good young reporters and older reporters. We hired a guy who'd been at Time Magazine named Dave Wood, who, you know, was late 50s, early 60s, burr haircut, khaki, khaki, you know, shirt, uh, looks like, uh, looks like, you know, Sergeant Rock. And here he is striding around in a bureau uh, full of kids who are like 27 and 28 years old, and he's happy as a clam. And we sent him to Afghanistan, and he's just done a big series called Wounded Warriors, which is all about the difficulties of people who've been seriously injured and have new kind of war injuries as a result of Iraq and Afghanistan. That's an award-winning series if I ever saw one. Uh, if it ran in the New York Times, they'd already be touting it for a Pulitzer. Um, so it's very interesting and exciting. I'll, I'll stop there and take your questions. Give us five minutes on politics. Oh, okay, five minutes on the campaign. Uh, as I was telling Alex earlier, uh, one, of the, one of the most satisfying and memorable moments of my life uh, as a person and as an American was to be like 50 feet below the podium when Barack Obama was sworn in as president on the mall on January 20th, 2009. And the memorable sight was not seeing Barack Obama. The memorable sight was turning around and looking across that vast uh, field of the mall toward the Lincoln Memorial <coughs> and seeing maybe a million and a half people, almost all of them with little red, white, and blue flags. And because of the, the, the red and the white, 
there was a kind of pinkish cast all the way along the mall. The sun came out, you know, just as scripted <laughs> when Obama spoke. And I felt that, that uh, for a moment, it was as though the whole country um, was very proud of itself and at peace. That lasted about 15 minutes. Uh, I think part of Barack Obama's problems, part of, problem, part of President Obama's problem, is the expectations that were raised for the instant fix that nobody could do. Uh, he 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 said not long after, a few months, a couple months after, um, in conversation with he had a conversation with Rahm Emanuel. <coughs> And Rahm Emanuel said, Mr. President, you know, I forget what was going on at the time, but Mr. President, it's too bad you had to be elected president at a time of two wars and a colossal recession. And supposedly the president said to Rahm, Rahm, if it weren't for the two wars and the recession, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> and uh, it's tough. It's tough, but I think he's been a, 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 he's been a disappointment to a lot of people. Uh, Conservatives were never with him, and that million and a half people on the mall was not all of America. I deluded myself perhaps into thinking it was all of America, it wasn't all of America. There's a part that's rejected him from the beginning, let's face it, partly because he's a Democrat, partly because he's an urban liberal, forget the race part of it. He's an urban liberal, he's a northern urban liberal lawyer and law professor. <laughs> you know. There are whole parts of the country if we use any one of those. <laughs> Forget it. You put them all. Leave race out of it, okay? Leave race out of it. So, so it's been hard for him in that respect. Uh, I think his best hope right now, at a time of dismal sort of plodding economy and, and declining expectations about the future, is to still be able to say that politics is a game of comparison, and it's compared with what and compared with whom that yes, it'll partly be a referendum on him, but it'll also be a choice. And I think the American people do recall, still vividly recall, uh, what George W. Bush and that crowd did to the economy. And most Americans still, even now, still blame the Bush administration. I mean, the margin keeps shrinking slowly still blame the Bush administration. Will that be enough to bring Obama through? I don't know. The you always got to look at it in terms of the Electoral College map. I think the Electoral College map is dicey. He's definitely not going to win Indiana. That was, you know, that was, that's never going to happen. That's not going to happen. Uh, can, can he win Florida? Don't know. Don't think. Can he win Ohio? Very dicey. Uh, even Pennsylvania is is uh, looking scary for them right now. Of course, if he loses Pennsylvania, he's gonna, it's going to be a wipeout. It's going to be a huge wipeout. If you look at the elect, they're they're thinking that part of their hopes uh, rest on Virginia and North Carolina. Now, Virginia he won pretty handily. North Carolina he won by a half a percentage point. Uh, if if they're really relying on Virginia and North Carolina. In their, their electoral college strategy, then they've got they've got real serious problems. I mean, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough, but uh, the Republicans, I think, have a weak field. They have a very weak field. Every any Republican would tell you that. And uh, Romney Romney just doesn't sell. Uh, Perry won't sell. Uh, who's there? That's why they were begging. All these people in New York were begging Chris Christie to get in. 
So I don't know who the plausible, most plausible candidate is for the Republicans. On paper, it's probably Mitt Romney. Uh, but, you know, Mitt Romney just is, is, is a tough sell. You know, is that what they say, that, that uh, cliche about the, uh, the company, ad, you know, asking uh, how, come, how come the ad campaign for the dog food didn't work, and it's because the dogs didn't like it. <laughs> that, is the dog, that, that is the dog food, not the ad campaign. And that's, that's the problem with Romney. So, the, so there we are. I'm sorry if I was babbling on, but uh, I, I got my excuse is I got up at 5.30 this morning to do Morning Joe, uh, which is a great show, by the way. Interestingly, the Today Show, which I used to do a fair amount, the Today Show does very little news, hard news anymore. Or I'm assuming they spent all their time on Amanda Knox this morning. <laughs> and, and Morning Joe is just hardcore politics. So what used to be the half hour of hardcore politics on the Today Show from 7 to 7.30 has been banished over to Morning Joe, but it makes a lot of money. Morning Joe makes a lot of, you know, MSNBC makes a lot of money. MSNBC is a real money maker. Uh, anyway. Here under the lesson. Mark McKinnon's not here, I don't think, is he? Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that he has been, he is here this semester, and one of the things that he has had a lot of uh, effort expended to to make happen is a, a nominating process that he insists is actually going to happen. The money's there, the, the mechanism is there to put the nominees on the ballot, and um, last spring we had the kind of anomalous <coughs> here at the Kennedy School of having Joe Scarborough and Mike Bloomberg come up essentially to declare their candidacy jointly for right. the presidency and vice presidents in this bipartisan ticket. Mm -hmm. Now, one, do you I think wrote that, about that. Do you think it will happen, number one, and do you think it will have any, what do you think the, the impact or significance will be? Well, I don't know if it'll be uh, Mike Bloomberg and Joe. I wrote about that. Joe got mad at me for writing about it. It's the first time I've been on Morning Joe's since. Um, Is that true? Well, I, I wasn't doing the show very much anyway, but uh, he, got, <laughs> he got mad at me. Why did he come here to do it then, for Pete's sake? Well, he got, partly I heard the story was that he wanted to be on top of the ticket. <laughs> he wanted Bloomberg to pay for it, but he wanted to be, <laughs> he wanted to be on top, he wanted to be a top, not a bottom. Um, um, I think that the conditions are certainly as ripe as they've ever been for a genuine independent third party movement. I think the two parties have made ridiculous uh, hashes of themselves. Max, feel free to disagree with me here if you want, but I just think that they play to their extremes, they play to the big money. In the case of Republicans, that's, that's the hedge fund guys at the Wall Street, you know, that's the big corporate money, that's the big buccaneers who now can give tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions, to, to, to PACs without having to identify themselves. Um, um, there's some Democrats who do that too, but on the Democratic side, it more has to do with the foot soldiers of the unions, although that's becoming sort of less true as the internet develops, because President Obama's campaign was the first Facebook campaign. It was organized on the internet. But it, I think people thought that the campaigns organized on the internet would, would make, would improve politics. I think it has the, I think it has the chance of doing that. 
it, but it hasn't so far because the pres President Obama's arrival in Washington ended up not heralding any kind of new age that we'd hoped for of, of comity and bipartisanship and reason. Instead, things have seemed to have gotten worse. But I think the money, the money is available, the machinery is available, and I think the, uh, the, the market is available for a real uh, third-party independent effort because right now uh, the polls show that uh, I think it's 12% of the American people think favorably of Congress. 12%. President Obama's uh, approval ratings, depending on the poll that you look at, are at 40% or below. They're not quite in Jimmy Carter territory, but they're getting there. And uh, it seems like the whole political system is devised uh, to prevent action, to, to make leadership impossible, uh, to really humiliate anybody who who, who tries to lead, and it puts a premium on telling people exactly what they want to hear as opposed to speaking truth in any way. And it's a troubling time. I mean, I'm, I'm very troubled about it. I, I used to have a somewhat poly, what I now regard as a sort of Pollyannish view. I wrote a book called The 13 American Arguments, available in paperback from Amazon, <laughs> uh, in which I said arguing is a good thing. Uh, and whether it's good or not, it's inevitable because that's who we are. We're the arguing culture, we're the arguing country, and that's what keeps us free and keeps us moving forward. And there are these 13 enduring arguments that will never end, nor should they end. But the flaw in the book, the flaw in the book is that um, I think you have to have a, s a certain smidgen of belief in the humanity of the people you're arguing with. And if, if you don't, if there's no connective tissue, if there's no uh, dark matter, if you will, like holding the universe together, if, there, if there's no sort of binding sense of community at all, if there's zero, then the happy world of endless argument that I wrote about in the book falls apart. And I think that's sort of where we are now. The lack of civic, res the lack of, of mutual respect, uh, the feeling that we don't really in all inhabit the same country as the others, uh, the, the, uh, the I'm for me and just for me uh, ethos that pervades so much of our life today in everything from sports to business. Um, has made the creative friction of argument spin out of control. And that's my analysis of things, whether a third party can bring that together, I don't know. But the first thing, it sounds Pollyannish, but you have to say, look, we're all in this together. And the, here's the question, who can say that? Who, who is there who can say that and have everybody believe them? That's the problem. Barack Obama, I thought, could do it. I thought could do it when he gave that speech in 2004 and said there's no red America and then there's blue America, there's America. That was a great moment. That's what made him president. That moment made him president. And uh, we lost it. Yeah, but.
I've always wondered if an uh, independent ticket won the presidency, how would they govern if Congress is Democrats and Republicans? Good question. They'd have to govern um, by essentially doing effectively what the parties themselves can't do now, which is put together coalitions issue by issue. The president has to be popular, the president, the president has to constantly go to the people, the president essentially has to have his own third party, which is an inter internet-based party of popular opinion, constantly pressuring members uh, to do the right thing, essentially building, building his or her own party. I mean, this has happened before, I mean, we have had moments before where one party becomes incapable of surviving and something else has to replace it. Of course, the last time that happened was, you know, the Whigs and the Republicans. So that's 160 years ago. Now you have a situation where it isn't just one party that seems incapable of making a point. You know, what happened to the Whigs is they just got torn apart by the slavery issue and out of that came a Republican party that was anti-slavery. So the, the Whig Party became incapable of serving its function. Now we have a situation, it seems to me, where both parties are incapable of serving their function. And I don't think we've had that situation before. It's not just one, it's both. I'm letting Alex point me, to the people. I want to offer first students the opportunity. Yes. Hi, my name is Diane Chang. I um, was one of those people that worked as a producer at the Chase Show, not really doing news. And I also worked at PBS for a while for Bill Moyers Journal. Mm -hmm. So I do want to take this in a little more of a media direction and not so much um, politics. Sure. So from what you said and also from what we know about the Huffington Post, um, we know that they've really paved the way for news to be done in a completely new way and has, um, to a large extent, kind of ruptured what the industry thought it was, the news industry thought it was, and its way of doing things. Um, so I am a little puzzled, like the um, traditional print industry and also broadcast outlets have decided that this model of having investigative reporters on and then, you know, just house them and give them the time and space to do their thing has been unsustainable. So I'm a little puzzled as to why the HuffPo is designed to do this, um, the reasoning there. And also, um, I know a little bit about the Huffington Post Investigative Fund. I'm wondering how that fits in. Okay. Because is that a nonprofit model and how that fits into the rest of the <coughs> Okay, this is somebody from who's actually had experience inside the news business wondering why, if other news organizations are getting, getting rid of their investigative staff because it costs money, we're, we're doing it. The answer is that we have a responsibility to do it. Uh, that sounds cheesy, but it's true. Uh, we couldn't look at ourselves in the mirror if we didn't. And I think every, most of the great journalism has been committed by family institutions of one kind or another. I, I used to work for one. Alex wrote a book about the Bingham family. I worked for the Binghams in Louisville, and they, they had a real sense of public mission and public trust. Yeah, I think Ariana does too. Um, and I'm not, you know, so I think she wants to do that. That's number one. I think we think it can sell, but properly done. I mean, 60 Minutes has done fantastic investigative stuff over the years. 60 Minutes undercuts the theory that it can't be done at a profit. They, they have a huge staff, but they're still one of the top shows on television. If it's done right, if it's, if it's run by 
a guy like uh, like uh, uh, like uh, Don, Hewitt. Don Hewitt, excuse me, that's run by a guy like you know a, a tremendous news impresario and uh, perfectionist like Don Hewitt, it, it can be done. Uh, so that's number one. Number two about the Huffington Post investigative fund, we found that unsustainable. This is before I came. They decided that to have a kind of double-breasted thing where you had a nonprofit group working with a for-profit group, <coughs> it just didn't work. So we essentially gave, we gave the Huffington Post investigative group to the Fund for Investigative Journalism. We gave them the staff, gave them the files and everything. So we were not in that business anymore. Students? Thank you, Rosalia Miller, uh, Mitch Hi, Greer. How are you? Hi, Howard. How are you? I recognize you, Carol. Happy birthday to Nick today. <laughs> um, so I'm at Harvard now for this year. Uh, my question is has to do with the um, with the Latino vote, which uh, and President Obama, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the immigration bill and the Dream Act, which all work together. Um, I'm wondering if you would comment on, on on the fact that you know he's losing the Latino vote. It's deteriorating. It's, it's, it's really a concern, um, and I wonder whether you could comment on that. Um, what's well, going on mind, with Latinos? And if you don't mind my turning it around a little bit, no, what ahead. what are your what, what what would you list as the top two or three reasons why he you think he's losing momentum in the Latino community. Um, great disappointment. Um, expectations were not met according to most of the Latinos in the United States. And I think that that, Over is, which issues that is shown it by the issue of the the Dream Act, I think has an enormous impact in this, um, this change, um, as well as the immigration uh, bill. So I know that we are not going to go, or it seems to me we're not, that's not going to be resolved. So we're, as we get closer to the election time, um, I have that concern as a Latino woman and uh, community leader in Washington, D.C. Well, uh, the Latino, the rise of Latinos in politics is just beginning. And uh, I think it's, the, in my time as a reporter, the big demographic change in politics was the migration of evangelical Christians into political activism. If I had to write like a, an AP Wire story summarizing, covering 30 years of politics, that would probably be the lead. Uh, evangelical Christians rose and changed American politics. I think, that, uh, I think that the Latino vote has the potential to do the same thing. Uh, but it's complicated because I think the community is more fragmented politically. Evangelical Christians, after briefly flirting with the Democrats and Jimmy Carter, went en masse into the Republican Party. I think the Latino community is more divided and, and varied and, and more multifaceted than outsiders understand. Uh, George Bush in Texas in his second run for governor, got 44% of the Latino vote in Texas. I think Rick Perry did pretty well with the Latino vote in Texas. Uh, there's a battle there, and, um, and uh, I think the Republicans are, I don't know if they're going to decide to throw Mar uh, Marco Rubio on, on, the, on the ticket 
or not. They could. Um, I'm somewhat mystified by the president's approach on on the issue. Uh, he's never really decided on this and many other issues uh, whom he's willing to offend, <laughs> other than yacht owners and people flying, you know, corporate jets. <laughs> Those are easy people to offend. Uh, we all hate them, <laughs> even though they contribute mightily to Harvard. You know? uh, but who is he willing to really piss off? You know, his his whole personality is a judicious, almost judicial one, and he doesn't want to offend anybody in the room. And uh, so I think he's been he's been vague on this as in, in many other issues. And uh, you don't want to make generalizations, but I'll make one <laughs> about Latinos. They don't like vague people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. They want the bright colors. <laughs> For or against? Yeah, just, tell us, just tell us where you stand. So I don't think his style is conducive to being very popular in the Latino community. Thank you. Yes. I was curious, since you're plugged in and your ears to the ground, I'm a big career student as well. And interested in this rumor that is out there that it sounds like people who might know, would be in a position to know, would know, that the Clintons aren't done yet, um, and that they are laying the groundwork for the possibility of Obama deciding for the good of the country, et cetera, to focus on the job and not run for re-election, and Hillary as the reluctant warrior uh, coming in. Do you think there's anything to that, or is that just internet uh, type or somewhere in between? Well, I'm, I'm tempted to say, just as a matter of readership, Lord, I hope so. Because <laughs> that would be, what a great story, you know, that, that leaves Shakespeare in the dust. <laughs> um, I, I, I think outside of the Clinton reunion in Little Rock, you know, they, whatever they were smoking down there. <laughs> I think it's unlikely because one thing, one thing about Barack Obama, he, he's he's a competitive guy, and uh, you know he has various shortcomings as an executive, and turns out he was better as a campaigner than than so far he's been as president. I think it's fair to say, but he's a he's a battler, and uh, and so is Michelle. Uh, if any of you know Michelle Obama, uh, it never happened. I'm curious, uh, first of all, why the Wall Street protests were picked up more quickly to be covered, and then I'm also wondering if this is a sign that maybe the left is going to start becoming more active, and how it is involved. The question was about the Wall Street uh, protests uh, and why it hasn't been covered more by the mainstream press. Well, I consider us mainstream, uh, given the numbers that I told you we have, but we've been covering the heck out of it. Uh, and I, I, I did TV this morning with Michael Lewis, who I think is a brilliant guy. And he has a new book called Boomerang, and he, he also did an earlier book on Wall Street. And he said, uh, he, he said, he was asked about the protesters, and you know, Michael's very familiar with what's wrong on Wall Street. And Michael said, 
you know, well, they definitely have a point. They just have to, fig have to figure out what it is. <laughs> and I think that's right. I mean, there's something there. I'm astonished at the kind of, uh, I would, maybe passivity is the wrong word, but I'm astonished at this sort of uh, lack of, of uh, political anger about Wall Street. And I think it's perhaps because people are just so damn scared about the economy that even though they would like to tear everybody on Wall Street from limb to limb, they, they don't dare do it, first of all, because they're too busy looking for a job or too busy standing in a line, you know, wearing a suit and tie with their resume. Or there's some goose that laid the golden egg kind of psychology there that, yeah, they're mad at Wall Street, but they don't want to go after it because maybe they believe that, yeah, if you put too much pressure on them, they'll go somewhere else, they'll, they'll pick up and all go to Beijing or Shanghai or who knows what people are thinking. But the people are more, right now people are more scared than they are angry. That's my say. And I travel around the country a lot. There, there's a kind of miasma out there. There's a kind of haze out there where, where people are worried and don't know what to, they don't know what to do. So they're not totally buying the attack on business thing. Because also the Chamber of Commerce and everybody else are very good at turning questions about big banks and the, and the big uh, hedge funds and all that, and all the bad stuff that they did. They're very good at turning it into an attack on business generally. And the American people don't want attack on business generally. They want a job. They don't want an attack on business. And and I must say that the Karl Rove and the Chamber and all of those people are much better at messaging and carrying the argument than Barack Obama has been. I mean, the, I, I think that the the, the lack of of, of clear uh, focused uh, messages. Uh, from the Democrats and, and President Obama has just been a disaster for, for both. Because Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid are terrible at it. The President often let them take the lead on things. What, what, what great communicator would let Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid take the lead? You gotta have your head examined. So, anyway. Yes. Oh, okay. oh uh, you talked about <clears throat> two things earlier. One was the kind of rise of news communities and also the deterioration of our political culture. And it seems to me like they're related, right? I mean, you have, you know, the news communities, you know, what do they have in common tends to be a kind of shared view of the world. And so you have people on the left and the right visiting Huffington Post, Red State Drudge, having very different conversations about the same issues. Right. And so the question is, I mean, what will it take to have a news community kind of that cuts across the partisan divide to help deal with this political deterioration? I think you stated the biggest problem in the interrelationship of the press and civil society. You're absolutely right. And I think about it a lot because I, I'm, I'm hoping that the media uh, isn't just part of the problem because uh, you wouldn't have any self-respect if that's all we were. And uh, I think one thing is that at the Huffington Post, just to take one example, 
I think we want to try, as we've gotten bigger, uh, to be more <coughs> Catholic with a small c in, in what we publish and what blogs we, we do. Well, I, I'm very proud of the progressive roots of the Huffington Post. We should never uh, uh, be ashamed of or abandon them, but we should be open to all. We're a big platform now. We have to, so that's one answer. There's a, new organizations are growing to take the place that the TV networks once served as a kind of communal dinner table, if you will. So that's part of it. But it's true that it's much different. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, how, how, I, many of you are old enough to know who Walter Cronkite was. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody. Do you know who Walter Cronkite was? <laughs> yeah, okay. But Walter Cronkite was the symbol of, uh, of that sense of community that existed I would say roughly from the beginning of World War II until uh, Vietnam and, and Watergate, et cetera. And at the end of his broadcast, at, at that time, the three broadcast networks uh, reached, I think, what, 75 to 80 million people in a much smaller nation every night at an appointed time. At 6.30 or 7 o'clock, people sat down. It's as though the whole country sat down at the dinner table and thought about the news in a mutual, in a, in a shared way. And at the end of the broadcast, Walter Cronkite, who was often but not always the, the number one rated show, would end his broadcast by saying, and that's the way it is. October 4th, whatever, this is Walter Cronkite. And he would say, that's the way it is. And everybody would go, yeah. That's the way it is. And of course, that wasn't the way it was. But, you know, we believe it. Now, now there are no sources of authority like that and no sense of community like that. So those of us who have the financial opportunity to get big enough uh, to play that kind of role need to, need to think about that all the time and, and need to be inclusive, not exclusive. That's the best answer I can give. Time for one more time. My name is Mitch Gerhardt, sir. I'm a national security fellow here, and I just love uh, listening to you on Morning Joe. I think you go right to the core. Whatever the issue is, I appreciate that. Uh, my concern is, you know, you talked about people seem to be not really angry enough at uh, Wall Street, and so I think they're feeling helpless. I don't think they feel like they have any power to right. change anything. Right. And I think it's uh, just one manifestation of a larger alienation that's prevalent throughout this country that the Tea Party's tapped into, that the Wall Street uh, group has tapped into. And I think capitalism has lost its compassion. And until there's some compassion brought back to capitalism where everybody can have a piece of the pie, we're going to have problems. And I think if they don't, what if they don't renew unemployment benefits? I think you'll see some anger then. Yeah. Well, I just, what I, I would put it slightly differently. I think we've lost a sense of, uh, I, I put this down, since I'm at Harvard, let me say, I put this down to the leadership class, if you will. That I think leaders, the leadership class in America has lost its moorings in many respects. People who have money and power are greedy and selfish too much. I think there has to be a limit. How much is too much? How much is too much? Too much power, too much money, too much status, too much insularity, whatever. And I think a lot of the uh, the sort of sense of uh, of stewardship 
and community that uh, not 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 to be not to be uh, nostalgic, you know, unduly nostalgic, but I think there was a sense of, of responsibility and proportion that leaders had who were lucky, people who were lucky and blessed and had access to things that people had that, that I don't think enough have now, so that's number one. Number two, in terms of the anger and being alienated, I think that is something that media can help do because it's not one way anymore. When Walter Cronkite said, and that's the way it is, it would, media were a one-way thing. We told you what the news was, and you know that was it. If I'm right about what the Huffington Post is and what, what other news organizations are, it's now a news community. It's now something where you can talk back, where your voice can be heard. I mean, we just had our, I think, 100 millionth uh, comment on the Huffington Post. I think that's the number, maybe it's a billion. I, don't know. It's, I think it's a hundred, it's huge. I think that's good, that's helpful. And I think the blog posts are helpful. And I think increasingly what we're gonna be doing is in addition to the blog posts and the comments, we're gonna be putting at the bottom of the stories or in the middle of stories, you know, if this, if this issue motivates you or you're interested in this, here's what you could do, here's who you could call. Now that's tricky. When does that go from journalism to advocacy I don't know, but I think we're inexorably, inexorably going to be drawn in that direction. Maybe that'll help uh, reattach people to the system. Uh, I thank you very much for the free lunch and for your time and attention. Thank you.